Welcome to the Dividend Talk Podcast, episode 108. How to make sure your dividends aren't cut during a recession. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Dividend Talk. Today we are joined with Joseph Hogue, CFA, aka Mr. Bowtie, where we will talk about how to make sure your dividends are not cut during a recession. All that and more. See you on the inside. Good evening, European DJI. How are you today? Actually, I'm really excited because today was my last day at work before the vacation. You know, we're Europeans. I had the first two weeks vacation at the start of June. Now I will have two weeks vacation uh, at the start of August, and I still have more than 20 days left for this year. So I feel really good, um, but equally excited because we've got a great uh, guest on the show today. And we know him, of course, as Mr. Bowtie. Yeah, yeah, we have Joseph um, Hogan today, which which everyone knows from YouTube as the guy with the bow tie. Um, Joseph, welcome to Dividend Talk, and thanks a million for joining us today. Derek, it's it's great being here. Thank you, uh, my pleasure. Uh, and I think you know, if excited, equally jealous, uh, talking about uh, your your vacation time there, because uh, you know, here in the states, we uh, I think we, we've got about. 12 holidays and that's about it maybe maybe about five vacation 10 to vacation days a year and uh and after that we're we're sol i guess yeah it's 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 quite crazy the difference my sister lives in new york and she only gets 10 days and mm -hmm. i get 31 31 days and oh, I, wow. I can i can carry them over as well so it's the difference is quite um quite amusing for me actually that that would be amazing yeah, um, but in, in America, they get like proper dividend growth uh, stocks uh, compared to Europe. So, you know, you can't have it all, right? <laughs> no, no. And I imagine you guys have to make it up, right? You, you work uh, you work 12, 12 months in 11 months time and then just take the 12th month off, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and don't forget underestimate the sick leaves, right? There you go. <laughs> Um, so, so maybe Joseph, for those listeners that maybe don't know who you are, maybe you might just give us a brief intro about who you are and, and what you do. Sure. Well, I, I come from an equity analyst background. Uh, after serving in the military, then I uh, I started in uh, venture capital. You know, after going to college, of course, uh, uh, then went into venture capital, equity analysis, and then private wealth management. Just really loved that idea of making my money work for me, right? Instead of always having to work for my money. So I did that for, for about 10 years working as an equity analyst. And uh, in 2014, really decided that I wanted my own business, wanted, wanted my own assets instead of always having to work for someone else. So I started blogs first in 2017. I, uh, I switched it over to YouTube and uh, I have just loved it. The, the growth has been exponential, really surprising. Uh, and, and I love that face-to-face -face connection you get with people uh, through video uh, on YouTube and that kind of thing. Really a sense of community with that. Um, I, I love talking to, to Main Street investors, really kind of why I made that switch. Um, you know, always with venture capital and private wealth management, you're always working with that 1%, right? The, the rich and the accredited investors. Uh, it's really great to be able to take that experience, bring that experience really to, to Main Street investors and, and share that as well. That's 
pretty cool and it's a pretty cool story actually and, and how you go from the military into finance that's um for me that's something quite quite interesting and I, I know it's, i know it's not the topic today but sometime i might pick a brain on how that actually sure. how that actually happened but well uh, you know i was a i was an armor in the uh, in the marine corps which uh i mean first of all you know being in the marine corps you don't get a lot of job skills unless you're going to be uh you know, I, I don't know, doing, doing something like that after, after the military, but even, even more so being an armor where you're fixing small arms and, and guns and things like that. There's really only one job you can take after the military with that. And I didn't want to be an armor for the rest of my life. So uh, yeah, I went back to college and, and really, you know, found that passion in, in investment analysis and uh, making your money work for you. Nice. Nice. And, and so far it's, it looks like it's going well for you. So sure. Um, so at, at this point, we usually discuss maybe some of the news of the week. Um, I know there was a lot of earnings that, that happened and European DJI Intel is probably on the top of your list. It didn't look too pretty, the numbers, when I looked. Oh, that's, I think, an understatement. Um, I, I, I didn't even hear people using the, choosing the words bad or something like just was everywhere horrendous, horrible, disaster. And I must confess, I'm now for six, seven years reading quarterly reports. I think this is the worst I've ever seen uh, that caught me by surprise. I mean, IBM is just, you know, it's clockwork that they are, they're, that they are kind of bad. But, but with Intel, it, is, it, it was horrible. Like, I don't have any other words for it. And if you think about it, their free cash flow could have even looked worse if they would have had the, uh, the capital expenditures that they committed to. Yeah, so uh, they've been actually underinvesting to make the free cash flow numbers even look a bit better uh, still. So this this someone is eating their lunch here, and I have a feeling that we will we will observe that next week when the uh, AMD earnings come out. Yeah, yeah. Well, what what will be interesting is is really seeing yeah how Intel earnings stack up against AMD against uh, some of the other chip companies because Intel is just it's just been so frustrating and so so disappointing right because this is, used to be such a strong company such a bellwether for the chip for the chip market and they've just squandered it right yeah. uh, I do think they've done a really good job at being in the ear of the administration, really two administrations in Washington now uh, that they've been talking up domestic chip production, really been the guiding force behind the new bill that they signed. Uh, so I'm hopeful that they're going to get a, a lot of uh, a lot of benefit for, out of that new bill. But management just has not been good for that company. No. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, what it, we can see, it, it has kind of a five-year lead time, right, to, to set up the whole production for this and to catch up. So AMD has been doing this for five years. Specifically, the former CEO was not acting on it. He was just really in inertia. And, and Pat Gelsinger, I think he has really good plans, but he needs to get through this phase and take all the shit on him for the <laughs> upcoming two years still because it's dirty at the moment. Yeah, it, it, it's like they were caught with their pants down, wasn't it? it it's like they were not expecting this decline in revenue and and i've seen those further delays on some of their chips as well so it's not looking pretty over the over the short term for for these guys but hopefully look long term the demand is there so surely surely pat can can make something of this company but time will tell um how about you joseph i think you you wanted to mention something about procter and gamble i think was it Sure. Well, I think it's just really the the overall 
revenue growth picture we're seeing in earnings. And I think Procter & Gamble is the perfect, the perfect example of that, right? Procter & Gamble today reported their strongest organic sales growth in a quarter since 2001. And that was when they started measuring it. So it could go back even further back than that. But they reported 10% year over year organic sales growth. And now remember, this is a consumer staples. This is a household products company. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still buying the same amount of toothpaste I used to. Uh, so where they're getting that organic sales growth is strictly from the higher prices. And uh, and I think investors are loving that revenue growth picture that we're seeing out of companies, but kind of overlooking the obvious consequence of what this means, right? Companies in the S&P 500 are reporting 10.9% sales growth on a year over year basis for, for this second quarter that they're reporting now, but only 4.8% earnings growth, right? And really that's it's it's interesting because that's usually the opposite, right? They usually report lower, maybe three, four, five percent sales growth, and then eight or nine percent earnings growth because they're leveraging up those sales through uh, you know, through operations and through debt and things like that. Uh, but now they're they're reporting these massive sales growth because they're raising prices, uh, but then they're eating a lot of that inflation. They're seeing a lot of those operational costs go up and only 5% earnings growth. And I think it really just points to the fact that inflation is here to stay. It's going to be more persistent than people expect. Um, with those prices going up, people are going to be demanding more wages, uh, higher wages, higher wage growth. And I think that's just going to continue that cycle uh, that, that feeds into itself and uh, keeps keeps inflation going up. Yeah, I, th I think you're really on point there. And I don't know if the same is in America, but in Europe at the moment, the airlines are like really having troubles, many flights being canceled, uh, workers just not willing to show up. Um, we have farmers protesting, blocking highways and such, uh, also because of climate deals that are being made. Uh, are, are also like workers in, 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 your, in your area, let's say, uh, also already protesting and such because it's hard for them to keep uh, keep up with inflation as well right sure sure and uh, you know the uh the the unions uh the unions do have a, a stronger bargaining power uh, over the last couple of years just with you know with the democrats in, in congress uh as is typically the case uh but but it's not it's not quite there yet i know the airlines uh, are uh, having having quite a few problems just like there in in europe uh it's, we're not seeing it in a lot of the other industries other than some of these e-commerce, I know Starbucks, uh, Starbucks and Amazon are both seeing quite a bit of uh, their own kind of uh, union problems. But uh, but but we are seeing higher higher wage growth and yes, kind of a momentum in that bargaining power of the of the workers. And yeah, now I'm don't get me wrong, that's that's great for the workers, you know, getting higher wages and uh, and having more bargaining power. But for investors, uh, you kind of have to disassociate yourself you have to be dispassionate about your uh, about your investments and look at what that really means for you know the bottom line earnings of these companies and understand that it is going to hit those earnings and uh you know and that's that's really the value of your stocks yeah. okay no, uh, that's that's pretty good um we might move on to some of the rapid fire round if, sure. if you don't mind um european dj have you got some questions yeah, definitely. So, Joseph, it's really simple. I give you two options. You just choose one. Uh, I've got five uh, five options for you. Let's say or five questions, and then you can clarify some afterwards. Okay. So the first one is, and I don't know how to say it actually, but uh, American football or ice hockey? Oh, American football all the way. Good. Intel or IBM? Oh, I'd, ha I'd have to go with Intel. <laughs> 
high growth and low yield or high yield and low growth? High, oof, man, that's another tough one. Uh, I, I'd say high yield, low growth. Starbucks or McDonald's? McDonald's all the way. And then the last one, Katie Wood or Elon Musk? Oh, Kathy. Okay, Kathy. I, Kathy Wood. Kathy Wood. Kathy Wood is Katie Wood. Is that like Katy Perry? Because I would definitely go with Katy Perry <laughs> over Elon Musk. That's not even a choice. Uh, okay, Kathy Wood or Elon Musk? Oh, I would go Kathy Wood, I guess. Super. Is there anything you like to clarify about your choices? Wow. Like everyone. <laughs> okay. So, so McDonald's, you can't beat the breakfasts. breakfast. Come on. Uh, so Starbucks, I get my coca mocha latte cappuccino, but, but that's about it. Uh, McDonald's has, has it all Intel IBM. Um, wow. I mean, just two train wrecks uh, against each other, right? Which one do you pick? I, I do believe Intel, it, you know, is, if they can turn it around and, and regain some of their glory years, then that could be a great rebound story. Unfortunately, of course, we've been we've been looking for that story for for the last ten years. Um, you know, the the yield and growth. Uh, I tend to to invest value uh, value and yield or dividend stocks. You know, broadly, but then growth selectively. And I and I think that's a great way to play play the markets. Uh, you know, really getting those those value stocks on a market wide basis, getting some of the best dividend stocks out there, but then selectively picking a couple of growth companies just to give your portfolio a little bit more growth, a little bit more return. Yeah, super. Cool. Thank you. I think that actually leads us nicely in into our topic. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about how to make sure your dividends aren't in danger of being caught in a recession. But just before that, do you remember your aha moment when you first discovered investing or maybe maybe investing in dividend stocks? I do, but but you know, if we're not going to talk more about Katy Perry, then uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah, actually, I do remember when I first in, uh, started investing in stocks. Actually, I was I was in the Marine Corps. It was uh, 1999, and uh, I was sitting in the uh, in the library in the in the the you know the my duty station there at, at the at the uh, the station, and uh, because of course back in 1999, nobody yet had their uh, their own computers and the internet and all that so i was in i was in the library using the computer and opened up a brown and company uh pl platform i opened up a brown and company uh account that later would become uh, later would be bought out by e-trade and and started investing so you know 1999 a great year to start investing because we all know what happened the year after that uh and uh it, but i think it's i think it's it, it was good in a sense that that now I can relate very really well to a lot of the people that just started investing over the last couple of years and have now seen their their investments crash so so horribly, uh, you know a lot of, learned a lot of things from that experience that that I can you know pass on to them. So so what did you what did you learn? What, what, sure. What are, what are the lessons you could pass on? One is, you know, just chase, don't, don't be just chasing those momentum stocks. Uh, it's great. I, you know, like I said, I do like investing in growth stocks, uh, you know, it's kind of selectively picking out some of those stocks, but, but when you, when you base your entire portfolio, and we've seen this a lot over the last couple of years, people thinking stocks only go up. Uh, so I'm going to pick the stocks that are going up the fastest. When you base your entire portfolio on those momentum stocks, 
that uh, that gets to be a problem when uh, when they're not working right when when the market does crash because they come down harder than any so you really need a, a bigger you know more diversified portfolio not just in value and dividend stocks and that you can have some growth stocks as well but you know having having some different themes there and, and understanding what momentum investing really is not just investing investing in those fastest growing or fastest growing stock prices but understanding okay when to take profits and things like that also, uh, you know, not understand the difference between a stock and the company, I think was probably my biggest, biggest lesson, because back there in 1999, I, of course, heard about a little company that was just starting up called Amazon. They had just uh, just went IPO in 1997. And uh, by 1999, they were up to about $100 a share, uh, which was pretty insane at those levels. Um, and, you know, I bought some shares. Uh, it started coming down, of course, in the dot-com bust. And I sold because, you know, if the stock price isn't going to make me rich, then it must not be a good company, right? Uh, that stock ended up bottoming out uh, at about $6 a share in 2002. And, and of course, I was glad I, I sold, right? You know, I got out while the getting was good and, uh, and didn't look back until, of course, it started going up again. And right now, so, so before the split, so that was, you know, $100 a share at the peak, about $6 a share at the bottom of the dot-com bust. And uh, we know that just last year before the split, Amazon was trading at $3,500 a share. Um, so uh, about, uh, you know, would have turned about $1,000 into $500,000 on that one stock. And I think it's really instructive for people that are investing over this last year. I've seen a lot of those growth stocks, you know, the Teladoc, the, the PayPal, the, the SoFi technologies just obliterated down 70, 80% and are thinking that, you know, those growth stocks, you know, the stock price has come down so much. It's not a good company anymore. But the problem is these, some of these are still very good companies. You know, they are changing the world in which we live. And, uh, and you know, one could be the next Amazon over the next 10 or, or 20 years. So, so really looking at, you know, looking at those companies and uh, evaluating whether it's still a growth company, even if the stock isn't isn't a growth stock. Yeah, and that's I think also one of the most difficult things when you invest, let's say, for growth, because for me at least, um, if I make mistakes, I often still have a dividend in return. Sure. But for instance, think about investing in biotech stocks. You need to be a biologist to understand what it is about. If you invest in consumer stables, you really need to understand uh, the supply chains uh, there. The same with Intel that we just spoke about. You need to understand a bit of the technology as well. And, and you know, the, the world is only becoming more specialized and more technology advanced. So it becomes harder for us, I think, as investors also to truly understand the power of a company and that's one of the reasons why i struggle also always with growth stocks because then people say you need to use price to sales and all these kinds of things but it's really really hard for me to to see successors uh, popping up in this uh, specifically also where the stock price or no the stock is of the same quality as the business let's say yeah and really you know that's what that's what peter lynch was talking about right when he said invest in what you know he wasn't just saying you know if you like mcdonald's breakfast then invest in mcdonald's because you like their breakfast he was talking about having that deep knowledge uh, within an industry and within you know within a sector to be able to really evaluate the operational uh, the the performance of those companies so i think i think what's what's helpful is to yeah just invest broadly in uh, you know market indexes in sectors uh, and, and in themes but then find those industries where maybe you have a, a professional experience in or you can build that kind of that kind of experience 
and uh, inv invest selectively in the growth stocks in those industries. So, you know, you, you may not be investing in biotech because you don't have a, a pharmaceutical background. You might not not be investing in semiconductors, but maybe you have maybe you can you can build that experience in e-commerce or in some of these other growth industries and uh, and really be able to to se selectively pick uh, some of the companies out of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, that's, that's some pretty good advice. I mean, I struggled a lot with that. I, I come from an engineering background and automation is probably my, my main area. So I know quite a bit about automation and, and in, in that world, but I struggle when it comes to finance or REITs and all these other non-technical stocks. So I think that's, that's some pretty good advice, but we're, we're here to talk about how to make sure your dividends aren't in danger of being caught in a recession. So, so how do we do that? What, what do you look for in these companies? Sure. Well, uh, it's actually going to, some of it's going to be the same that I look for in any company, really a sales growth and operating margin relative to their peers. Um, I think sales growth relative to peers. And of course I say that because it's, it's so important. People look at uh, overall sales growth. They look at maybe some of these valuation metrics and they just compare them across, uh, across all stocks. And, uh, and it really tells you nothing, right? If you're looking at sales growth for Procter and Gamble versus sales growth for uh, for Tesla or something like that, right? Because it's completely different business models, completely different industries and and uh, you know dynamics. So you always need to measure, use your measures uh, against the peers in the industry, uh, and really. I think looking at the sales growth, looking at the operating margin, uh, and, and picking out the companies that have stronger, uh, you know, that can grow their sales faster, it really gives you a sense of which ones might have competitive advantage, right? If the industry is growing on average by about four percent a year on sales, then why is one company able to grow their sales by six or seven percent, and presumably taking market share from a lot of others, right? Uh, operating margin as well. You know, why are they able to be more efficient uh, on a relative basis versus their their peers? Uh, so I think it really really helps to pick out the uh, the best companies, the best of breed companies within uh, dividend stocks, particularly as well. You want to look at the payout ratio, right? How much of their earnings are they committing to that dividend? Uh, and that's going to be a great you know a great safety net when it comes to uh, when cash flow problems do come up in a recession. Uh, whether, you know, if they've got a lower payout ratio than their peers, they're going to have a little bit more leeway uh, generally. Uh, also lower debt to equity than their peers uh, and those that interest expense that, that they have committed to, to pay. Uh, one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest problems we see with dividend stocks, since these do tend to be more mature, stable cash flow companies, they have higher debt. Right, they that they have more stable cash flows so they can they can take on a little bit more debt and generally not not have a problem with that. Where we see the problem is in stocks like IBM, stocks like AT&T, where they get into this acquisition, uh, growth by acquisition, you know, and they and they just put on tens of billions of dollars worth of debt. Of course, these acquisitions never turn out as good as they thought they would, and uh, but the interest expense is still there and it's still growing. So I think that's really where you see a lot of the problems when it comes to dividend cuts, when it comes to dividends, uh, dividend companies is you know, the, that, that debt to equity. So I think that's really instructive to, to measure that, uh, you know, relative to peers and, and looking for those companies that, that are going to have some leeway. I'm also looking for total return on the shares, right? Rather than just the yield. Uh, I love that cash flow. I love the dividend payment, but I want to see companies that, uh, that are rewarding me through uh, capital appreciation and, and the stock price over time, uh, as well. And regarding the debt, Joseph, do you also feel like um, that of the last, let's say, 
Now, since the great financial recession, that the monetary policy has made it also more difficult for companies, but also the Fed and such right now, because for me, it feels like even the high, higher quality uh, blue chip stocks, they went full into buybacks and everything, leveraging debts, uh, interest payments. So, you know, where, for instance, in the past, maybe a 60% debt to equity was considered safe for some industries. I have a feeling now you rather need to look at 40 or 50 or something like that just because of the interest payments going uh, uh, up. Or maybe it's more from the payout ratio point of, point of view, let's say. Because it feels like we're coming off a historically very low bottom, right, with interest payments. Sure, sure. Well, it's definitely it's definitely got to be something you look at because uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't begrudge a management that did use a high level of debt uh, through that, that that, you know, use debt to, to buy back some shares, possibly even um, because interest rates were so low. I mean, how mm -hmm. could you not? How could you yeah. not take advantage of that? But but you're right. You have to look in there and say, OK, you know what? Now, how is a. Uh, how does that debt look if uh, if if interest rates are going up? You know, what's the debt maturation cycle or debt debt mat maturity cycle that they have uh, over the next few years that they're going to be looking at having to having to refinance some of that debt and, and what prices are they going to get? Um, that buyback program is is really important as well. One of the things I look for in a dividend company and to to know which ones might be safe during a recession is is companies that do have that buyback program that can cut that before they cut their dividends because it's all it's really all about protecting that cash flow. And how do you then look at a company like Starbucks that has a negative equity as a result of buybacks, where it feels like uh, there's more debt than assets on the balance sheet? Uh, it, it feels really unnatural. And, and what is your approach to this when you analyze such balance sheets? Uh, does it feel okay for you or is this something that we should be aware of as investors? Sure, sure. Well, uh, that's a, it's, a it's fairly rare, I think, uh, especially for you know, large established companies, de dividend companies like that. I, I think I would look, look first at the, uh, you know, the goodwill and intangible assets. Uh, what have they been doing with those? Because uh, gen generally, you know, generally, especially for the large dividend companies, they're 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 going to have more assets than uh, you know that that debt. Uh, if they've been putting on so much debt that it is uh, they've got a debt to equity ratio of more than a hundred percent, then then I, I I would think that was a problem. That uh, is a problem. Um, I would wonder why they were putting on so much debt. You know, was it that growth through acquisition um, growth through acquisition yeah. strategy? Uh, was it just to buy back shares, which Especially if they were buying back shares over the last few years, while while share prices hit peaks, you know that's all obviously uh, always kind of a, a red flag. And uh, his, companies don't have a good history of buying back their own shares at a, at a good price. Uh, so, so I would definitely think that that's that would be a warning sign, right? Because, yeah. like you said, rates are going up. That uh, that debt is going to be getting more expensive. Um, and and for consumer staples companies that aren't going to be able to raise their prices like they have this this last year. Uh, and have that generally slow sales growth and slower cash flow growth, then if their interest expenses is rising quite a bit over the next couple of years, that's gonna that's gonna really weigh on earnings. Mm -hmm. So, so you you have a company that that passes all your your screeners as as good growth, and then they cut their their dividend. I know you're looking for total return here. What do you do in 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 that situation? Sure. Well, that's always a, a kick in the nuts, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, get, get, getting kind of caught with that. Um, you know, you, you've really got to evaluate whether it's still a good long-term investment. You know, was it management that I was just making horrible decisions 
uh, and that, that really hit that cash flow, or was it just the overall market? You know, so again, you're going back to the industry, you're looking at the other the competitors and things like that. Are they are they getting uh, you know surprises on their cash flow as well, or can you really say you know what management has just has just ruined this company? Uh, I think AT and T there is another great example uh, over. 10 years or more, uh, really, management had just destroyed that company with its with its acquisitions and, and poor decisions. I think they've turned the corner here with this strategy going back to their roots, going back to telecom. But, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall uh, for, for the dividend cuts there and, and even, even after. Uh, it's generally, you know, if, if there is a surprise cut uh, and announcement, it's generally too late to sell the shares immediately because the market, of course, is, is pricing that in now and, and the, the stock price has, has fallen quite a bit. Uh, so, so you've, you've got, you know, you've got a good uh, couple of weeks, I'd say, usually uh, to, to make that decision to, to really go in back into the financials and evaluate the company uh, to see if you want to sell it now. Because uh, gen a lot of times you'll see that big sell off uh, when the dividend cut is announced. But then maybe something something like a dead cat rally or dead cat bounce uh, over the next week or so. Um, so you've got that that time to really make that rational, informed decision instead of just rushing out to your to your account and selling all those shares immediately. Do you still remember what uh, dividend stock uh, uh, in your portfolio got uh, cut their dividends like in the last few years? Ah, uh, last few years I don't. I mean, there's, you know, I, I own a lot of, div <clears throat> excuse me, I own a lot of dividend funds. Uh, so I'm sure they had AT&T in there. I'm sure they had uh, a GE in there. Uh, I just started buying AT&T this year in, uh, you know, in December when they, when they kind of made that announcement that they'd be selling, you know, selling the, uh, the rest of the, the AOL assets and, and that, and, and getting back to their telecom roots. Uh, so I wasn't in that uh, GE. I've held it in the past when they had a dividend cut. Uh, you know, so so I, I did get caught, did get caught on that one with GE in the past. Yeah, GE is my worst investment from that point of view because I, I almost believe Jeff Immelt. I mean, he wanted <laughs> to build the windows for the industrial uh, <laughs> industry, and I, I I should have known that by working in IT that it's utterly useless strategy sure. at the time. But sure. yeah. And you know, I, I just another yet another example, right? Of, of so frustrating because that company was just like Intel. It was you know, the blue chip stock to own yeah. for so long, and, and did so well by its investors. And then management has just has just ruined the company. So if you want to torture yourself, you should uh, read the book uh, "The Lights Out," which is about uh, the story of GE and how it uh, became what it is today. And it gives an inside view on how management was also, in my opinion, just manipulating the numbers uh, to look the end of the quarter look good. Like on the last day of the quarter, quickly, quickly still uh, doing an uh, asset sale or something like that to boost up, the, boost up the earnings. But then not, you know, it's such a large uh, industrial complex so that nobody would really see it in the books uh, because it was on the details. So I, I always wonder like, why did nobody of these guys ever got prosecuted, uh, at least uh, visible in public, right? Because if you read this book as well, which was really a journalistic work, there's kind of this, uh, you know, this, this privilege, uh, of CEOs that they often get away with things also by law, right. And how, how you're protected or shielded from, uh, from bad management effectively. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I might have actually I might have to do a video about that because because we we do know that just looking at the income statement, there are so many uh, so many different shenanigans that uh, that management pulls to make the make the 
not so much the revenue always, but they, you know, they, of course they do move up revenue by extending credit, uh, credit terms, but uh, yeah. just boosting those earnings by, uh, by doing so many other tricks, uh, accounting yeah. tricks. And, and really um, it's, it's too bad that there's not more, more honesty, I guess you could call yeah. it in, in the reporting. Yeah. We always make fun uh, here about adjusted free cash flow, adjusted EBITDA. <laughs> Everything is adjusted nowadays. Yeah. It's, it's not non-GAAP earnings. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Non-gap earnings. I sometimes can't understand when it's like um, if you want to take currency fluctuations out or something like that, right? I, I can I can feel for it, but adjusted free cash flow. I mean, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but it, it, yeah, it's where, where where you get a problem is when those uh, those those recurring uh, those recurring and non-recurring differences. Yeah. Uh, you know, when everything becomes uh, non-recurring and so that that non-gap earnings is just ridiculously yeah. high i put one time uh, 10 years of ibm earnings uh in a row and we did a podcast on it and we also looked at the press release statements of every year and it was ibm watson it was right then it was the cloud uh then it was blockchain and every year they had the, the next new big thing that the whole strategy would be set around. Nothing of that came almost to fruition. <laughs> so effectively, Red Hat is uh, saving them now. But you can see that the earnings, I think, went from $30 to $6 uh, per share or something like that over the decade. And you can even see the gaps between uh, adjusted earnings and normal earnings and free cash flow. And you can see that it's all the time restructuring costs in there, all the time write-offs on there. And the only thing I, I, I actually really see there is like poor management decision from the past, poor management decision from the past, poor management decision from the past, right? So yeah, IBM would be a good case uh, study for that one, Joseph. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I always like to, like to go back to uh, uh, operating cash flow or, or just cash flow, but but really operating cash flow versus growth versus uh, earnings growth, right? Comparing yeah. comparing what they're actually bringing in as far as cash flow, and not to say that that can't be manipulated a little bit as well, but but yeah, what are they reporting as far as cash coming in and out versus yeah. what are they report what are they reporting on earnings? Because a lot of times you see a huge gap there uh, in yeah. those, you know what they're what they're able to account for. And and this is, by the way, one of the learnings that I had when I uh, studied Intel's last 10-year track record because the free cash flow was really high. But it, but I now learned that this gap sometimes that is widening between earnings and and free cash flow can also be a sign of underinvestment. Mm -hmm. And sure. this is what happened in Intel. They've been just maximizing cash flow but underinvesting for the future. And so... Going forward, I will look stronger at let's say the the capex free cash flow ratio to see how that how that trends to competitors and over time in general. Cool. Um, maybe just a couple more questions uh, before we, we we finish up on the topic. But sure. I, I'd be curious to know: do, do you actually own any European stocks? Uh, I don't. I, I own uh, I own some international funds. Uh, so, so I, I have European stocks through those de developed markets funds, mostly uh, I think the, the VEA, the Vanguard, uh, the Vanguard developed market funds. So that has mostly European stocks there. It's kind of how I, I get my exposure mostly just because, you know, I don't, uh, I, I don't analyze the, uh, the financial statements well for, for European companies. Yeah, it makes sense. You, you guys got so many great companies over there. You don't need, you don't need us over here. 
Um, well, well, I mean, the, the accounting is different too. Uh, you guys have a I first right, uh, and we have gap. So it's a little bit different, uh, different financial statements. And, you know, I just never, never really wanted to spend the time, you know, learning that gap to IFRS, uh conversion. Yeah, and you know, and if you want to diversify, I mean, you mentioned Procter and Gamble, right? Uh, you have so many great American companies with a lot of sales sales internationally, so you can leave the companies uh, having the impact of currency, right? Sure. Yeah. And uh, what is then your all-time favorite dividend stock? Do you have any? Oh, all-time favorite dividend stock. I'd have to think about that just a minute. Um... You know, right now, and right now, I, I really do like a New York Community Bank Corps. That's ticker NYCB. It's a bank, a community, smaller community bank, and the the stock price, you know, hasn't done that well. But uh, but I think the banks, the financials uh, in particular, are coming into what could be you know the best uh, the best net interest interest margin period since since the eighties. Really, uh, great time, you know, with those interest rates rising for the banks. Uh, this company, this. The stock NYCB pays a, I want to say about a seven percent dividend yield. Last I checked, uh, which is e high even for the banks, right? So, yeah. uh, so strong dividend yield. I, I think they're coming up on you know a very good period as far as uh, earnings and, and that kind of thing. Super. So maybe then uh, the last question uh, regarding this topic. Um, sure. What would you advise to someone who's actually starting right now with investing in this period that might actually have a lot of fear of, you know, if I put my euros or dollars in today with how the stock market is going and then 10% 10 later next month, right? What sure. would you advise someone? No, I'd, I'd tell them they're lucky, lucky as hell, right? Uh, for somebody just starting right now, I, I, they're already getting a 20% discount to where prices were at the beginning of the year, right? Uh, so just imagine if you had started six months ago or or a year ago and uh, and are now looking at a 20% loss, you know, those are the those are the the, the real ones that, that you got to console, I guess. Right. If you're just getting started now, this is a great time to get started uh, for anyone, though, really just understand that the recessions and bear markets, it's just a fact of life. And and, and besides giving us those discounts. Like I said, we're down 20% now on the S&P 500. Uh, so so you've got some some great buying opportunities out there. Uh, these are just valuable lessons that we all need to learn, right? Those lessons like, you know, just chasing momentum stocks, uh, really doing the analysis behind stocks and, uh, you know, and diversifying your portfolio, things like that. So, you know, even if you've started six months ago or a year ago and you're looking at losses, uh, it's not, you know, it's not you, it's the market, right? Uh, the the market has, has brought everything down, even the good companies. So, you know, keep that perspective that uh, that it's a good opportunity to pick up some of those stocks at a discount now. Keep on saving, you know, and uh, and keep on putting your money in stocks because there's there's really no better return you can get. Um, so we have some questions from our listeners, if if you don't mind. There's about four or five. Um, sure, absolutely. Some. So, so Phil is a regular listener and he has asked what he calls his standard question. <laughs> I, th I think he asked this to most guys we have on the show, but he wants to know how you would rank revenue growth, earnings growth, cash flow growth, and dividend growth. Excellent. Great question. Uh, I would look at, I would be cash flow growth first, right? Because it's less easily manipulated than, uh, than a lot of your stuff on the income statement. So I'd be looking at cash flow first. Uh, revenue growth uh, would be second. 
uh, that would be, and, and again, basically I'm kind of using that as a proxy for competitive advantage for the company. So I'm looking at company's revenue growth versus its peers and you know why one company is able to get so much better sales growth versus others. Um, from there, dividend growth, uh, obviously very important and, uh, and something you want to look at that longer term picture uh, and then earnings growth, right? You know, I mean, earnings are earnings are what it comes down to, but there are just so many ways that that management can manipulate that on the income statement that a lot of times it's just a poor measure of of how the company is really doing. Yeah. Um, Dividend Wave has asked which two or three companies are you most bullish on? So your your longer term holdings. Mm. Okay, so I've got. Uh, I've got a couple couple picks that uh, probably would surprise people just because you know, they, they've done so horribly over the last year. Uh, but I think they 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 fall into that category of you know still still good companies. Uh, one is Teladoc, which just had a horrendous quarter. Uh, they're marking down a lot of their uh, their goodwill, which is is interesting because the stock was down something like twenty eight percent when they reported earnings just recently. Uh, and it was because of that, the goodwill, you know, like a $3 billion impairment charge that they took, uh, which really doesn't change how the business is performing or operating. It just changes, you know, it changes their assets, right? Because they, they got so excited about these acquisitions and, and their, you know, their, their intangible assets that they marked them up so high and now they're having to mark those down, but it's still, you know, they're, it's still the leader in virtual healthcare. And I think, you know, I think virtual healthcare is going to be kind of a wave of the future. So I think uh, I think it's a great stock to to pick up at these prices. Uh, SoFi Technology, another growth stock that isn't necessarily a growth company or a growth. It's a growth company, but not a growth stock anymore, right? Uh, you know, it's fallen pretty hard with the rest of the growth stocks, with the rest of the the stocks that did so well over the last couple of years. But this company is a fintech leader. It's one of the very few uh, fintech companies that actually has a banking license as well, right? So a lot of your a lot of your fintech companies they operate online but they don't have a banking license so they can't offer uh this they can't offer the same rates as traditional banks they can't offer savings accounts checkings accounts things like that uh sofi has that and i think it's a huge advantage over the rest of the uh, their competitors uh so sofi technologies i also like uh actually you know surprisingly i like groupon still it's it's not done well over the past uh but i i just started buying it here in january uh, and you know they've got a huge, uh, a huge investment, a private investment in a, a company there in the UK called SumUp, which is a payment processing company. They they own uh, about two and a half, two and a half percent of that company, which turns out to be right around you know, 400, uh, 400 million dollars just that one investment, uh, and, and is almost as much as the stock is trading for right now, right? So they've got uh, they've got investment, they've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet, uh, and uh, and I think a lot of really hidden value. To that um, now, of course, that's another one that the, the management has just destroyed the company, and uh, they need to get someone in there to, to turn that around. But I think that's a that's a a, a potential one uh, over the next year, not necessarily a long term stock, but but you know a next year kind of thing. Um, for long term, again, you know I like that in, in New York Community Bank Corp NYCB. I think it's a very strong dividend yield and and coming into a very good time for the banks. It's funny that you say about Groupon. I I I haven't used it anymore in the last ten years. I, I forgot that it even existed, but now I remember that you always got a nice email, and then every day there was a deal you could buy something. Damn, where, where did is, that go? 
Yeah, you know that, and, and another one that they used to that used to be the company, right? They, I think they got a yeah. six billion a six billion dollar offer from Amazon, or or you know one of one of the larger e commerce maybe uh, commerce companies wanted to buy them just after they went public for six billion. Uh, they're now trading for like three hundred million dollars. So obviously they missed they missed that opportunity. Um, and, and yeah, it used to be it used to be the e commerce leader, the e commerce the, the big upstart. Uh, and now they've just, you know, they've just kind of squandered that. Uh, but, yeah. but I think those those assets, you know, that sum up that sum up investment, as well as the cash on the balance sheet, you yeah. know, if they can if they can figure out a way to uh, turn cash flow around, then uh, then there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of value locked up and hidden in that company. Um, Ivan then has asked us. I think there's a lot of debate going on. Um, he said Bloomberg and CNBC whether the US markets are in a recession or technically in a recession or are they not in a recession. So sure. what, what, what are your thoughts? What do you think on that? Sure. Actually, I actually just did a video on that uh, uh, Wednesday uh, before I wanted to do it before the, uh, before the second quarter GDP numbers came out because I, I had a feeling they were going to be bad um, because the, the Atlanta GDP now tool, I was actually predicting uh, another uh, the quarter the quarterly loss. While most economists thought that thought that they would be able to to report a, a growing economy, and we we did end up seeing the economy shrink there in the second quarter after the first quarter. Uh, so so that two quarters in a row of uh, of uh, of decline in GDP is a rule of thumb for a lot of people for a recession, but not the one that they they officially use by the National Bureau of Economic Research, right? The NBER. They're the ones that actually officially say, okay, the recession started here, uh, ended here, and, and make that announcement. Of course, it, it we, we never know we're in a recession until one is obviously already started, I think, uh, which obviously leads to a bunch of kind of oh shit moments, right? It, or no shit moments. In 2008, December 2008, they announced that a recession had started a year earlier. And uh, that was after after something like a 30% loss on stocks and 8 million jobs lost. So it's, it's really kind of an after the fact kind of thing. You know, the NBER, they look at all kinds of things like, you know, consumer spending, retail sales, uh, besides just that GDP number. Uh, so not, not yet technically in a recession, but it uh, it sure feels like like that way to to a lot of people. Uh, same same here, Joseph. Uh, my market rate went from two and a half percent to eight percent in six months uh, because I'm in a Polish currency. Uh, imagine all the homeowners around me uh, here that suddenly can't go on vacation or something like that because their inter expen interest expense tripled. You know, and if you are having let's say a twenty percent uh let's say market rates cost based on your salary that's now 40 or 50 percent just six months later so and then also the the prices in the shop are more expensive uh, fuel in europe skyrocketing gas prices electricity because of the russian uh, war with ukraine i mean it's a no-brainer um sure. i don't need to wait for the numbers for this no no and, and i i don't think we've seen the worst or the last of of really the economic effects of all this uh interest rates continue to go up i, I think the market is way ahead of itself right uh in, yeah. in rebounding over the last few weeks um like like you said mortgage rates are skyrocketing that's adding a lot of money uh and, and really pricing a lot of people out of the housing market uh, we're just now starting to see consumer spending come down 
yes, wages are going up, but not nearly as much as uh, as prices. So exactly. people people are getting poorer, uh, and, and I think that's really going to start showing through over the next few months. And uh, and there's there's going to be no doubt uh, that that we are in a recession. Um, Alexandra has asked, "What do you think of the long term debt cycle talked about by Ray Dalio?" I, I really, you know, what fill me in? I, I really haven't kept up with with what Ray Dalio is saying. It's just because he's he just says so much uh, and so often. I, I think he's kind of a kind of the broken clock a lot of times, right? Yeah. So, uh, Rich reminds me the last season of Stranger Things, which was awesome. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it's effectively saying um, every forty years there's a debt cycle. So let's go back to the eighties and such. Um, and he's also talking a lot about the changing world order at the moment uh, with China. So usually the end of the debt debt cycle also could lead to civil war, populism, these kinds of things. He he. Sometimes he keeps those topics separate from each other, but most of the times he mingles them in uh, here. Sure, sure. Well, I think you know. I, I mean, I think he can be right on those those longer term uh, universal forces, like uh, you know, like populism, like uh, rising China, uh, what it means for a lot of things. I, I know he's been calling for a crash in the dollar for years, uh, and, and of course, you know, we've seen the dollar uh, stronger than it's been, you know, in decades. Uh, just recently, against the euro, against the yen. And that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I think I think you can be right about some of these big picture items, uh, and and still wrong about how it's going to affect the markets. Uh, and, and I think we've seen that a, a lot in in what he's talking about. Uh, you know, sure, I, you know, populism is is really becoming a problem. Uh, you know, not just not just economically, but but politically and 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 stuff like that. But but you know, how do you how do you take those longer term uh, trends? and bring them back into some kind of a, a trading strategy or even you know even if you should trade around those i don't know yeah i have no clue either the only thing i know is that if there's an inflation this year with ten uh, percent and our retirement funds are still re-indexing with zero percent i know by the time i'm 65 there's no money left for me so <laughs> and the only way how i make how i know to make money that that grows for me is actually the stock market. Savings accounts are not an alternative. Real estate is so expensive here, um, sure. and I'm it's out of my circle of competence. So it's not much left, right? Uh, I think they say Tina. There's no alternative. The, exactly. I was just gonna say there there is no alternative. And, and you know, I mean, I, I like real estate. I actually started uh, with an internship in commercial real estate as an analyst. Uh, and, and you know, I, I mean, real estate's a good inflation edge, but but yeah, stocks, you don't uh, you can you can index. You don't need to uh, to, to spend a lot of time researching, and uh, and do just fine. And there's uh, again, there's just no better return than stocks. Uh, you know, letting uh, and 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 while they don't always uh, do that too well against uh, really high inflation, they do. They are a better inflation edge than than a lot of other. Uh, investments you know a lot of other uh especially bonds right okay and then the last question is from jeffrey and he has mentioned that you loved uranium stocks for quite a while are you still bullish with them are you still in love with them i, th I think longer term you know there there is the demand there for uranium uh, in that nuclear capacity but uh but it, uranium um marijuana cannabis stocks a lot there's a lot of those trends 
that we just see those cycles, right? We see those hype cycles. And so if you're, if you're one that's going to be watching those consistently and constantly and, and you know, be investing, uh, investing when, when the cycle is lower and getting out it, you know, after you've made a pretty good return and at the top of that hype, then they can be very good investments. Um, I'm not, uh, I sold out, I'd say probably about nine or 10 months ago out of most of my uranium investments uh, and just kind of waiting for that, that low, right? Uh, same thing with a lot of, a lot of clean energy stuff, right? It's, it's a great long-term picture, uh, but you've really, it's really much more of that cycle approach to investing uh, that you see, you see these ebbs and flows. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, if you're a long-term investor and you just want to invest longer term with that demand picture, I, I think they can be great investments, you know, but you do have to understand that they're going to go, they're going to go crazy and then they're going to crash uh, and they're going to repeat that uh, off over and over again uh, until, you know, until that longer term demand picture does take over. Um, and then usually then at, at this point, we might have our favorite stock of the week. I know you've picked two or three earlier on but it is the one stock maybe your favorite stock of all time that you would like to mention i don't know about all time but it's a, it's a, a really a, you know a great stock i'm watching right now I actually got some really good news this week is paypal right i uh, got some news this week that elliot management is uh is has a, has a fairly large stake in it and, and is going to be pushing for changes there at the company uh you know i, I think they are the leader in an industry that is taking over our lives right we are no longer using cash we're, we're now uh, ever increasingly thinking about our money in terms of zeros and ones right digitally uh they are the undisputed leader in uh in in those cash payments and the uh you know the dig digital wallets i think i saw a survey that asked uh you know which digital wallet service you use and the top two was um was paypal and um and Venmo, right? Which which is both owned by by PayPal. Um, actually, I think I was get I was getting mixed up whether Venmo is a Square or PayPal, but but they basically they own the the top two, right? So they have, they have a dominance in that. Uh, I think the you know the potential for those digital wallets is something that a lot of people don't understand just yet. You know they're not really monetizing those digital wallets like they could. They could turn those digital wallet customers into basically a, a an entire financial ecosystem where they're selling insurance, they're selling financial products, they're selling uh, banking. You know this this the everyone with a digital wallet at PayPal or even at Square really could become a uh, you know a, a customer throughout the throughout the financial services ecosystem. And they're just not doing that just yet, right? Uh, so I think over the next 10 or 20 years, you, we're, we're gonna see that. We're gonna see them monetize those customers in that. And those, you know, just just the just the market value of those, those digital wallets alone, you know, Venmo and the Cash App are gonna be two or three times what the whole entire company is worth right now, right? Um, so uh, so yeah, PayPal, uh, I think is is probably the one to watch over the next, 10 20 years awesome super thank you um honestly myself i stopped using paypal because of the commissions <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it's just too expensive but i can really see the attractiveness in in using it specifically if you're also a web shop or something like that um, yeah i think it has a really really good user experience 
Yeah, and they're you know they're always they're always innovating or uh, you know finding finding the companies that are innovating and adding those right through yeah. through, through smart acquisitions right the yeah. uh, you know the the debt uh, the debt hasn't built up through a lot of the acquisitions they've been doing so that's always a positive yeah. Uh, and yeah you know they they are on the forefront of, of a lot of these trends you know uh, cryptocurrencies uh, that that digital wallet a lot of these trends in digital payments. Uh, that they're yeah. they're maintain they're maintaining their lead right there's a lot of competition out there sure uh but yeah. i think you know even even with those higher higher expenses uh that that paypal charges versus some others they're they're able to to keep that lead yeah definitely it's just shows just the quality of the business right sure. yeah joseph uh, it was really awesome having you on the podcast and i wanted to also share a big appreciation because i've been um I've been watching your videos not all of them uh it's it's too much for me uh, from a from a time time spent point of view sure. but what i really really appreciate in you is that you can keep a complex matter and explain it really simple um it's really hard right and what i really like is uh, it's even just the the tone of your voice and that you reminded me just again about it because i remember why i always kept watching to you it's your tone of voice the calmness you bring to the to the to the viewer and i think you do an awesome job with that because we need to empower more people um to take matter in their own hands and uh, this is so important uh, i think for the world we live in today which becomes more individualistic also in europe uh, government cannot support us anymore like they did 20 30 years ago with our parents so just want to share my appreciation because I think you're really a multiplier for also a lot of starting investors. And I think that's also quite unique on YouTube, I must say. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things really my mission is is uh, to bring, you know, that that stock investing uh, to, to Main Street investors and really get everybody investing because it's like we, like we've been talking about, there is just no better return uh, for, for the amount of work that you have to do. If, if you want to index, you buy the indexes and uh, you never even have to worry about stocks. Uh, about it and yet you're going to get that that consistent return year over year and uh and it's going to help you meet those those financial goals thanks awesome well well thanks a million again for coming on it's it's been it's been a pleasure um i've enjoyed chatting to you and, and getting to know you and i'm sure our listeners will will as well so thanks thanks very much for my pleasure thanks guys okay and to our listeners we will see you all the same time next week